and a very warm welcome to this very special episode of ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Are you in or are you out? That's the question we'll be asking and answering in this very special edition of the podcast. We're now just hours away from the EU referendum, which will decide if Britain will be remaining in the European Union or if we'll be making a swift Brexit from the bloc. So, in this packed episode, we'll be bringing you everything you need to know about the EU referendum, all in the context of how it might impact Britain's energy and environment policy, and what effect it would therefore have on you, RED listeners. Coming up, we sit down with Green Party leader Natalie Bennett, who stresses the importance of actually getting out and voting on Thursday. One of the things I'm a bit concerned about in places like London here, you know, perhaps Cambridge, Oxford, uh, cities like that, where people say, oh, everyone I know is voting to remain. How can they possibly be a question? It's really important to stress every vote counts. The UK's former Energy Secretary Ed Davey leaves no holds barred when telling us his views on the Tory party's green policy going into this referendum. Applying a green tax to renewables is economic madness. Getting rid of the zero carbon home standards for future buildings is nutty. Ending the carbon capture and storage pilots is verging on the negligent and criminal. And myself and the ED editorial team will provide some of our views after months of reporting on both sides of the debate. So yes, welcome along to, to what I think is the fifth episode now of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Two huge interviews this week, I'm sure you'll all agree. Uh, and I'm also joined here by Edie's trusty editorial team, senior reporter Matt Mace and, and reporter George Ogilby. How are you doing, guys? Yep, I'm very well. I'd be um, grateful for when this week's finally over <laughs> yeah. and we know one way or the other. Yeah, excited about EU referendum day? I am, yeah. I, I, I thrive in chaos, so I'm looking <laughs> forward to this. Good stuff. Well, uh, we'll talk a bit more later in the show, um, but it really is a packed episode and I don't think we should let our first podcast interview of the week wait any longer. On Monday, I was lucky enough to have the chance to sit down with Green Party leader Natalie Bennett. I actually got in touch with Natalie via Twitter um, just last week and I just said, how about a quick chat about the referendum from an environmental and green policy perspective? And sure enough, she replied uh, an hour or so later and and we got it set up. Um, Now, as you're probably all aware, Natalie recently announced her decision to stand down as leader of the Greens in August. So we do have a quick chat about the party's developments over the past few years and where she hopes things will be for the party in years to come. But the majority of our, our discussion is, of course, about the referendum and, and with the Green Party f- falling firmly within the in-camp, Natalie was keen to reiterate the real environmental risks and problems that might be caused if we saw an outvote on Thursday. Now, we're in a very busy bar in London for this chat, so apologies if it gets a bit loud at times, but hopefully you'll enjoy hearing what Natalie Bennett has to say to us about the EU referendum. Here's that interview in full. So, uh, here we are then, sat outside a, um, a bar, in early busy bar in, in London's King's Cross. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be joined here by none other than current Green Party leader, Natalie Bennett. Natalie, welcome, how are you? Uh, very good, thank you very much, great to be with you. Good, um, so we're now just days away then from the EU referendum. Um, when I say that, first of all, how does that make you feel? Are you, are you nervous, excited, optimistic? Um, Well, I think I feel like it's still a great deal of work to be done because the reality is I think the referendum result could be very, very tight. Mm. Uh, So everyone who's able to have a chat with someone at the bus stop, have a talk in the the pub or the cafe, talk to their friends and family, uh, every vote really is going to matter. And that, of course, is one of the things about the referendum as opposed to our usual first-past-the-post electoral system. Lots of people feel like if they live in a safe seat, uh, their vote doesn't count in general elections. But in this referendum, everybody's vote counts for the same. And one of the things I'm a bit concerned about in places like London here, perhaps Cambridge, Oxford, uh, cities like that, where people say, oh, everyone I know is voting to remain. How can there possibly be a question? It's really important to stress every vote counts. Uh, And... Uh, you know, don't feel like you know, oh we know our city or our, my community is going to vote for Remain. The total tally matters, so we need to get every vote out on Thursday. Yeah, and as you said, it's obviously it's, it's really is hanging in the balance. This one, I mean, the latest polls are showing that there's just one one a couple of percentage points between in and out camps um, for the Green Party, which is obviously firmly within the, the in camp. Um, what are the deciding factors then for this referendum? What key issues? Uh, has the party really been pushing for for voters to consider when when casting their vote on Thursday? Well, through the whole campaign, we've very much been stressing that we're putting a positive case for the EU. 
that we believe that we need flourish best when we work together jointly on the problems that we face. And we've also been saying that we celebrate free movement of people in the EU. This enriches the possibility of all of our lives. So those are the two key points we've been making. And of course, part of that has been a focus on environmental issues, um, looking at the fact that air pollution, water pollution, fish stocks, other wildlife, natural uh, environments don't stop at natural borders, uh, don't stop at um, national borders. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the time in um, uh, in debates that I've been with people from the Leave side, I've heard quite often, "Oh, we should leave the EU because we'll get back control of our fish," which always uh, brings to my mind the idea of, of a, an image of a fish with a, swimming around with a passport tucked under its fin, um, you know, swimming in circles because that's all it can do in those circumstances. Yeah. You know, it's obviously there are many things we need to work together on, uh, and we also, you know, a lot of the immigration debate has sadly been very toxic, very nasty, very unpleasant. Um, we need to acknowledge that you know, if you take, for example, our NHS, um, there are more than 100,000 professionals, doctors, nurses, midwives and others uh, from other European countries working in our NHS. I just recently learnt there are more than 900 German doctors working in the NHS. If we talk about the NHS, being a member of the EU is an integral part of the NHS and all of those... Um, non-British EU citizens living in in Britain. Uh, Most of them on average are healthier than uh, the average British population is. They're working, they're contributing to paying for the NHS. They're not a burden on the NHS. Okay, and so to make this then scrupulously relevant to, to our readers, to sustainability professionals, what does this EU referendum mean for them? I mean, the Greener In is the sort of campaign slogan that the Green Party have been using. So, from your perspective, why are we Greener In, and, and how would how would the vote be impacting our readers? Well, uh, Greener In, of course, also takes in very much the social and political elements. It's obvious that I'm sure everyone listening to this from the sustainability community will be well aware of the many protections, indeed the cushions that the EU has delivered to the British government to take action. Cleaning up our beaches is one of the very well-known ones. Uh, The level of protection for um, sites of special scientific interest uh, and and other levels of protection that come from from the EU. Uh, Air pollution... Of course, you know, we've um, seen you know, it was the EU that has really pushed Boris Johnson in particular when he was Mayor of London, but the British government more broadly to actually take action on air pollution. Air pollution that, of course, is an environmental issue, but it's also very much a social justice issue and an issue of the health of all of us, given you know, something like 50,000 people die prematurely as a result of air pollution every year across Britain. So to look at this another way then, I mean, um, what are the risks or implications if we were to to pull out of the EU in all of those areas then? What would happen? Well, I I think one of the useful ways of looking at this is for anyone who's still undecided about their vote is to think about what would happen if we did vote to leave the EU. Um, What we've obviously, as the Green Party, given some thought to this, and what we'd have to do, I think, is sit down and write a huge list of all of the protections that we now have under EU law, uh, EU um, directives, things like the Fundamental Charter of Rights under the EU, write an enormous list of everything that would be either lost or threatened, and then start campaigns to defend all of those things, or to get to restore all of those things back into UK law if they only come from EU law. So what it means is actually refighting a whole series of battles that we've previously won. They'll have to be fought all over again. And of course that's at the same time while we're in a situation where we've got huge pressing environmental, economic, social and political problems which will still continue to be there. Of course, cutting our carbon emissions creating a sustainable energy policy, not current government's current policy based on um, what I call the fracking fantasy and on the extremely warmly basis of Hinkley Sea. Uh, we've got all of those existing problems, 1.1 million people visiting trust and trust food banks, an economy that's way still way too heavily focused on the financial sector and banks that are risky and too big to fail. We've got all of those problems, and then we would, by voting to leave, be adding a whole extra layer, an enormous layer of things we need to focus on, sort out, work through our relationships with other countries. So really, it's it's almost doubling our problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you'll be pleased to, pleased to hear then that our, our readers, um, the majority of them, seem to be 
definitely leaning towards that in vote. Um, we've been running our own readers' polls on the site for the past couple of months, and they're coming out at about sort of 75% of our readers, sustainability professionals, saying that they'll be voting in 19% out and about about seven percent still undecided and, and um, i think uh, th- those who, who were sort of leaning in the in the leave direction i would wish them to look at a site called the environmentalists for the eu mm-hmm. and also to look at um like scientists for the eu yeah. and look at all the, all the surveys of scientists which just so absolutely overwhelmingly yeah. it's usually in the 90 percent plus range scientists say they want to remain in the eu yeah and that, uh, there are a minority, though, that, that might not necessarily see it the way you do or that the majority of our readers do. We've had the likes of Bloomberg New Energy Finance's chairman, Michael Liebrick, um, who stated that Brexit would not have significant effects on UK energy policy and wouldn't impact clean energy investment in the way that other people are stating it would. Uh, we've had some Tory peers come forward and point at the, the common agricultural policy and common fisheries policy as, as what they call environmental disasters. Are they just wrong those critics do they have a point that some green policies at an EU level like the agriculture and fisheries policies have not perhaps performed as they should have i think to run through those starting with the fisheries which is quite easy the fisheries policy in the eu was in the past pretty dreadful uh it didn't result in overfishing uh it did result in environmental damage uh but it's interesting you know, i'd go to friends of the earth on this and there's a very good blog if you if you if you google friends of the earth uh, fisheries and, and referendum, you'll find it, where they're basically saying, yes, it was bad in the past, we have now arrived at a pretty sustainable, quite decent um, position, so why would we leave at the point in which we've actually got to the right policy? And I think fisheries is a really interesting example um, of people often complain that the EU is undemocratic. But fisheries, many people, I, I bet a great many of your um, readers would have taken part in the campaign against discards um, a couple of years ago, uh, saying you know, fishermen were throwing away low-value fish, yeah. killing them, then throwing them back in the ocean to pick up higher-value fish under their quota. Now, there was a campaign, Britain was particularly prominent in that campaign, celebrities like Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and others, uh, and the policy got changed which is a really interesting example of how democracy should work. Mm. Not just a matter of, devo- of voting, but a public expressing a view and then the government reacting to that view. So that on fisheries, common agricultural policy, as the Green Party won't surprise anybody to know that we have lots of problems with how the common agricultural policy is applied in Britain. Mm. But a lot of the worst element of it are actually as a result of British decisions about how to implement the common agricultural policy. Right. I mean, I, I was travelling by train through Germany a year or so back um, and just really notice, noticing my first degree is agricultural science, so I've got an interest in this area. Um, you know, how their farming was, even quite small fields, were being farmed as a patchwork of strips with different crops at different stages of development. It's going to provide you know, havens for the natural world. It's going to provide you know, a far better ecological environment in terms of farming. And that, of course, is happening under the Common Agriculture Policy. So it's a question of a lot of the issues are around how we implement it in Britain rather than European issues. And finally, on the, on the point of energy policy, um, I think, uh, you know, if I can't think of anything that I would defend about British energy policy, but the word in, key word in there is British. We need, I would say, you know, what we really need, the change we need in Britain, is a different government in Westminster. The change we need in Britain is not leaving the EU. Well, we'll get on to some of those green policy issues in just a second. But, um, I mean, Green Party's MP, Caroline Lucas, has said many similar things to what you said, actually. We spoke to her a few months ago, um, and obviously just last week she joined forces with um, John Ashton uh, to proclaim that this is a, a, a climate referendum. But I suppose the reality is on a broader level, looking at the, all of the TV debates that are happening at the moment um, and the wider debates around the EU, it doesn't seem to be a climate debate from the uh, perspective of the, the common voter. Um, many of these big issues um, are not, not being talked about enough. We've written a couple of surveys recently where sustainability professionals themselves um, are saying that environment and sustainability hasn't received the right level of attention going into this referendum. Why do you think that is? Why is climate change, energy policy still not getting being pushed into the limelight as it perhaps should be? Uh, well, I think, it, I mean, it's partly a problem, as you say, broadly with climate change, energy policy, environmental issues not getting the sort of coverage they deserve. 
but it is actually in this case a much broader problem because you can also say very much the same thing about human rights, the EU's role in, in promoting and supporting human rights. You can say the same thing about workers' rights. Um, you can say the same thing about just basically debate about understanding how the EU works. I mean, at its worst, this whole debate has basically been a Tory leadership contest thinly disguised as a referendum campaign. And that's the way the media has covered it. And I mean, I'm on record. Um, I did um, uh, cause a bit, a, bit of, a bit of disturbance and shock by stepping in front of uh, David Cameron Harriet Harman and uh, Tim Ferron uh, breaking with, with protocol, breaking with the schedule to step forward uh, at, a, at a stronger in event and say you know, to the media directly as a message, you, know, you are not doing democracy or the public or the voters any kind of favours by the way you're covering this campaign. And that has been a huge problem. Uh, all we can do as the Green Party is use all the different kind of vehicles available to us, the media vehicles places like eddie.net um, to, to reach out to people and to spread that message and use social media and that's very much what we're doing um, but you know, I, I, I stepped into the, uh, the the limelight to some degree there but I'm told that uh, BBC News Channel had already moved away so uh, it didn't go out live so you, 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 can, you can only you know try to force your way onto the news agenda it's not physically possible to uh, to, to invade the, the television studios and, and get on to that way <laughs> and I suppose it could be said that then to, to make climate and energy issues, sort of to see them be taken more seriously by the British public, you would need a government that is taking them um, seriously enough and addressing them in the right way. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, over the past year, the government's approach to energy and environment policy has been controversial, to say the least. Um, we've had a raft of changes, cuts to subsidies, axing of key energy efficiency schemes, um, and this has led to a, a clear decline um, initially in, in renewable energy investor confidence. Um, as leader of one of the opposition's parties, what, what's your view, on, particularly over the past year, since they came into power last May, um, what's your view on their approach to climate, energy and environment policy? I, I think if one's going to uh, put one word while still re- remaining polite, I think dreadful is probably the appropriate word to be used. Um, I mean, what we've seen is basically the destruction of what were already pretty weak and ineffective policies under the former coalition government. We've seen them just torn away. And I think one of the things that perhaps is most surprising about this is you think about this as a Tory government who you would think would be uh, you know, at least concerned about small business and communities, yet what they've done with their policies is pulled the rug out from under thousands of small uh, solar installing businesses up and down the country, pulled the rug out from under community energy schemes at various stages of development up and down the country. So even in their own terms, in terms of their own politics, um, the Tories really have done a huge amount of damage. Uh, and of course on the broader scale of ensuring we have a sustainable, renewable-based Uh, secure energy supply in the future they are really in a state of chaos in any objective kind of measure even ignoring ideology ignoring for a second the issue of climate change their energy policy is a mess (laughs) and I suppose I mean Amber Rudd and her her team at uh, DEC um, have said that many of these changes are necessary to keep consumer bills low and to protect energy security. Do you understand that point, or do you think they're, they're misguided in that view? Well, it, it doesn't make any sense when you look at the fact that, of course, if we want a secure, um, yet reasonable cost energy supply for the future, renewables are it. I'm mean, quoting Bloomberg New Energy, saying that... Um, onshore wind in most of the world is now the cheapest source of electricity. Uh, solar is very very rapidly approaching parity. Um, it's thought to be, you know, they, the estimates vary, but something like 2020 parity. And, but of course, for that to actually, for us to be able to speed ahead at the point where that becomes the cheapest energy source, we actually need an industry in place. We need a trained workforce. And so that's why a relatively short period of relatively modest subsidies um, ensures that we're ready to take advantage of that what I describe as free fuel the wind and the sun will always cost nothing the actual the fuel that's feeding, feeding those systems uh, and, and, and more than that um, you know, the utterly you know, unarguable point is that the cheapest, greenest best energy you can possibly have is the energy you don't need to use and on energy conservation this government is doing so close to doing nothing that it might as well be nothing. And I was going to ask, I mean, if there was one specific area that, that you, that the Green Party, would like to see 
changed out of all of those things that you've mentioned? It sounds like it's that focus on renewables and stabilising subsidies, providing more support and stability for investors. Would that be you? Um, if I'm going to be allowed two, I'll go for two, which is one, one of those, but the other is also energy conservation yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is just you know it's a Cinderella the problem is there's no fancy new shiny bits of machinery that ministers can stand in front of and pull you know the curtains to reveal the plaques etc but giving people warm comfortable affordable to heat homes not only does it make perfect sense from the energy the climate change point of view it also tackles our huge problem of, of um, fuel poverty you know, we have um, the last figures I saw we have the second worst fuel poverty problem in Western Europe. We're not as bad as Lithuania. Uh, now, that's not because our energy is particularly expensive. It's because we have a really poor quality of housing stock. Now, if we treat the housing stock as part of our national infrastructure, which it clearly is, and invest in insulation, other energy efficiency measures, draft proofing, even really basic stuff, then we can cut fuel poverty, create lots of jobs which are going to be sustainable for decades because there's a huge amount of work to be done, uh, and cut our carbon emissions. It's a total no-brainer. And you mentioned earlier, um, the, I think the words you used were fracking fantasy. Uh, you mentioned that they were perhaps also um, a bit misguided in, in their focus on, on the likes of Hinkley Sea as, as kind of the, net, the balance of the energy mix. Where are they going wrong there? Is, how would you like to see that, that energy mix play out and, and why are the government then focusing on these areas that clearly aren't, aren't renewables and aren't the most sustainable? Well, to start with the fracking fantasy point, um, I've met you know, lots of energy professionals, uh, both people who are pro-fracking and anti-fracking, and I haven't met one of them who believes that fracked gas, shale gas, is a significant part of Britain's energy future. Um, at most, it's a small supplemental uh, part of the supply. Uh, and yet, if, if you think about how often you've heard that David Cameron or George Osborne talk about fracking, versus how often they've talked about uh, renewable energy or energy conservation. Uh, the balance is extremely you know, wrong when you think about this isn't a significant issue anyway on those terms. And of course there's huge public opposition to fracking that's only growing. Um, curiously, opposition to, public opposition to fracking is enormous. Public support for onshore wind, offshore wind and solar is very, very high. Yet the government is positioning itself on the unpopular side. Possibly, of course, what we're talking about there is UKIP voters and their own voters they're catering to, not the general public's view. So that's the fracking side of things. We've been supporting the anti-fracking movement. I'm very pleased with the strength and the growing sense, in which I think it's not just acting in many communities up and down the land to oppose fracking, but it's also spreading awareness of climate change, spreading much awareness of these issues into places where it may not have reached very far before. Uh, in terms of nuclear, well, I mean, Hinkley C, uh, the, the two similar plants to the proposed Hinkley C are both you know, massively over budget, running many years late. Don't think anyone really believes in the technology, and even you know, pro nuclear people just put their head in their hands when you say Hinkley C. You know, it really does show. I think another good example of this is a similar comparison is HS2. Um, Very bad policy making. Uh, Decisions are not being made on a sensible basis judging the evidence. Basically a government gets politically attached to something and then it will cling to it through thick and thin even when all the evidence shows it's a really, really bad idea. And and that really is a, a problem in Britain that we really need to look at. It's not a very sexy sounding subject, but the quality of our governance, the quality of government decision making is really poor. And I think it's a lot of it's related to the first past the post electoral system and the way in which if we see we have two sides and policy flip-flops whenever you change government, um, that's really not very healthy at all. And changing our electoral system, you know, obviously I believe in that politically, but I think that is also essential to get to better quality of decision making. Okay, and, and so to, to wrap up this discussion then, perhaps we should turn our attention to, to you and to the, to the Green Party. Um, obviously you're, you're stepping down at the end of August, um, but membership and support for the party has, has grown exponentially in the, in the time that you have been in power there, um, up from 13 to around 60,000 now. Um, are you, just quite generally and broadly, are you happy with the time, with the, with the years that you've had uh, leading the party? Are you pleased with how, that, how the party has grown? 
Uh, yes, I, I, I've been looking back, of course, as one does, having serving it. I'm finishing my second two-year term and not really standing. Um, and looking back at what I set out to achieve was, you know, I set out to uh, grow the membership of the Green Party to get us on truly on the national stage and to strengthen our local party network. And you know, obviously, there are things that I'd like to have done better on. There are things that um, I'd like to have gone further on. But we have pretty well quadrupled our membership. Uh, we've got local parties covering nearly all the country now. And you know, I was there in the leader debates. The Green Party is now you know, increasingly acknowledged. We still have a bit of a struggle with the BBC, but increasingly acknowledged as one of the major parties of Britain. In the recent elections, you know, our Scottish Greens, our sister party in Scotland, did very well in the parliamentary elections there. Uh, and so you know, I feel like after four years, uh, I've achieved what I set out to achieve. Um, I'm stepping down but not stepping away. I mean, continuing in planning to continue doing pretty much what I'm doing now um, after a nice holiday in September, I'm hoping for anyway. But, um, uh, you know, I want to continue doing what I'm doing and, again, it's building capacity. I think as former leader, I'll have a position where I'm able to continue a lot of the work travelling the country, supporting local Green parties, getting the Green message out, um, but in a way that allows me a little more chance to sort of choose my topics. I, I really want to focus on food and farming. I want to focus on education and on the broad economic issues um, and, and really develop those, talk about those to a wide range of people. Within the Green Party, you mean? You just... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and you mentioned um, areas that you perhaps could have done better on or gone further on. Is there any particular um, challenges during that four-year period um, that you look back on and perhaps wish you could have approached in a different way or that you've learned a lot from? Uh, I think for the Green Party, we focus very much on, rightly, on, on building up our internal structures. So when the Green surge, it was it was called Cain, mm. and at its height, 3,000 people joined in one day. Mm. Um, and, you know, the website had a bit of a wobble that day, but all of it pretty well held up, all of those structures held up. And that to be able to cope with that sort of expansion yeah. is yeah. great. Um, we're, we're still struggling, and of course, we're a major party in terms of our membership. Um, what we are not, we don't have anything like the same amount of funding and money as other parties do, and that means we're still very thin in terms of our support and press, the sort of support we're able to provide to our elected representatives and spokespeople, uh, and and that you know, is something that I hope, and, you know, maybe someone listening to this might be able to help us with this. I hope that we'll be able to perhaps you know channel members of the environmental community, members of the social justice community, people who really care about these issues to support us in future, to be able to strengthen those sides of the party, the press, the public facing side of the party, because you know, we did get, at times, you know, horribly overstretched during the campaign, and I'm not sure, given the resources we had, what we could have done differently, but we, we need to be able to put more into that in future. Okay. Given the way that the party is, uh, looking at the way the party is going to be led in, in years to Come. Um, Caroline Lucas has declared she'll stand for the party's leadership in a, in a job share um, with work and pension spokesperson Jonathan Bartley um, under that slogan of the power of working together. So quite an interesting move. Are, are you a supporter of, of that? Well, my position has always been as Green Party leader. I've never endorsed any internal candidate for any internal post. I think once you get the title of leader, um, that potentially gives you, just that title gives you a lot of power and a lot of influence over people's decisions. And in the Green Party, we're an intensely democratic party, and I think I shouldn't use that power to influence internal elections. Uh, and I've never done that. So uh, what I want to see, in, of course, it's not just the election for leader, but also deputy leader and the national important post of the national executive I want to see as strong a field as possible and as many people as possible putting themselves forward and then yeah, it's a real chance to have a debate and discussion within the party and that strengthens the party I believe and then just finally then looking at this all through the, the that prism of climate change and green business issues um, given the broader context of Paris the SDGs within the past year um, where do you see the state of UK and perhaps EU green policy in, say, sort of three to five years' time? Are you optimistic about the way things are heading? I, I, I'm naturally an optimist, but I think also we're at a point of real change um, in British and indeed global politics. We've been dominated for the past 35, 40 years by a neoliberal political philosophy that said green is good, inequality doesn't matter, and we can keep trashing the planet, and somehow or other it'll just take it. That's where we've been ever since the rise of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And if you look actually historically back before that, 
we had for 35, 40 years after the Second World War a social democratic consensus um, that was very different. And then Thatcher and Reagan and others rose apparently very quickly, apparently almost from nowhere. Uh, and that became the new political common sense. Uh, so I think in the next three to five years, we're going to see a lot of the things that have, until a few years ago, been seen as political common sense. Things like privatisation of public services, uh, things like uh, you know, cutting the pay and condition of workers um, as some kind of positive somehow. Uh, all of these things, I think, in three to five years' time, will either have got or be well on the way to getting a whole new political consensus. Um, I think that is what I'd call the green political consensus, but I don't care what you call it. I think what it has to do is have two key elements. One, of course, is that we have to live within the environmental limits of our one fragile planet. And it's not just climate change. I've done a bit of work recently on plastics in the oceans, for example. You know, we are trashing this planet. We have to stop now. But secondly, if we're going to deliver that in democracies, we also have to ensure that everybody has access to the resources for a decent quality of life without fear, without worry. Because in the past, the promise has been that growth will lift people up, including people who are really struggling now. We cannot rely on that anymore. What we need is a sustainable society that gives people genuine security and freedom from fear. And I'm confident that in three to five years' time, we'll have established or be well on the way to establishing a new political common sense based on those principles. And one in which where hopefully we are still within the EU and tackling these issues together. Exactly. Okay. Well, on that note, Natalie, thank you very much for taking the time out um, to talk to us during such a busy week of campaigning ahead of that Thursday's referendum. Good luck with everything in the build-up to that referendum and, and, and with your last few months as the leader of the Green Party. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Cheers. Now, moving swiftly on to our next stop on this podcast, and I emphasise the word swiftly because this really was a bit of a manic Monday for me. Um, straight after chatting with Natalie, I rushed back into the office and, and had about 10 minutes before I had that call from the former Energy and Climate Change Secretary, Ed Davey. This wasn't a call out the blue. We were um, able to arrange this chat with Ed again on, on pretty short notice. And again, it turned out to be a, a great interview about the referendum and also about the UK's approach to green policy over the past year, which does bring out some, some very nice sound bites. Now, Sir Ed Davey, as I should probably be calling him, served as Energy Secretary for three years under the coalition government, succeeded, of course, by Amber Rudd. Um, so he's incredibly well placed to discuss all of these things. He does sound a bit quiet on the phone, and that's because he told me that he was sat in a in the corner of a pub when we were having this chat. Um, it's not all he does nowadays. He's uh, he's a man who has genuine interest and passion for for green business and, and for the renewable energy industry. He now chairs a community energy company, um, and he has his own energy consultancy. So it's great to see um, one of our own energy ministers um, actually staying on in in the sector. Anyway, maybe you're still a maybe you're a sustainability or environmental professional listening to this podcast, and you're you're still undecided about how to vote in this EU referendum. Hopefully, this chat with Ed Davy will help. So, uh, I'm joined now on the phone by former Lib Dem MP Ed Davy, who served as Amber Rudd's predecessor as the Energy and Climate Change Secretary for the the Coalition government. Ed, hello. How are you? Yeah, well, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, good. Um, now we're of course chatting at a, a crucial time for for UK politics and for for Britain in general, with the, the EU referendum taking place this week. Um, if we're to believe the various voter polls from the past few days, um, this thing really is hanging in the balance, just one or two percentage points between the in and out camps. Um, where's this referendum going to be decided then, in your opinion, Ed? What do you think are the most crucial factors, first of all, that, that voters are going to be considering um, going into the big day later this week? Well, they're going to have to consider the long-term interests of the United Kingdom, which are to stay in the European Union. It would be not just a disaster for us uh, economically and environmentally, but politically too. I mean, if we were insane enough to vote to pull out of the EU, that is the end of the United Kingdom, effectively, because Scotland will go independent. It's hugely damaging to the Northern Irish peace process, which is predicated on there being no border between Northern and Southern Ireland. And it's hugely damaging to our reputation across the world and will dramatically reduce our influence. So there's an awful lot at stake, um, and it would be deeply damaging to the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, so lots of risks then. And um, I know that obviously you didn't mention the words sort of climate change or environment or green energy policy just yet there. But um, 
I mean, despite their seriousness, those issues in particular don't seem to have much have had much prominence in in the various debates that have been taking place in the build-up to the referendum. Um, why do you think that is? Why is has the environment and sustainability not necessarily received the right level of focus from from either side of this debate? Um, well, it's a great shame because um, Britain um, has been hugely influential uh, through the EU and in, within the EU to take on the climate change debate, which is a critical issue for our children and, and their children. Um, and we've learned a lot by working with other countries about how best and how more cheaply we can tackle climate change. So it is a critical issue. It's a, one of the many reasons why we should stay and remain in the EU. But why hasn't it been part of the debate? I think it's partly because within the people that Mr. Cameron's talking to and George Osborne is talking to, um, namely some of the Conservative Party supporters, they're not as keen on the agenda as many people in other political parties. Mm. And we have not seen an awful lot of leadership uh, in some parts of the Labour Party, at least, um, even though uh, Labour share with my party, Liberal Democrats, a strong commitment to tackling climate change. So um, I think that's part of the reason. Um, and it's a great shame because uh, many people, young, old, middle-aged, whatever, whatever, they, whatever background they come from, care about climate change and do understand that it's one of those international problems that you cannot solve alone. You have to work with other countries. Mm. And um, I've actually just returned from a very interesting chat with the leader of the Green Party, Natalie Bennett, who um, said exactly that, um, that it's a, a problem that needs to be tackled um, sort of unilaterally as part of a, a wider uh, team, if you like. Um, and she reiterated the importance of remaining in the EU when it comes to um, environmental issues, whether it's kind of you know, cleaner beaches or key issues such as common agriculture policy, fisheries policies. Um, do you agree with Natalie then? I mean, you know, are, we, are we sort of greener in the European Union when it comes to sort of policy, as the Green Party puts it? Well, Liberal Democrats strongly believe that we will be greener if we stay in the European Union. Um, Liberal Democrat MEPs and myself as Secretary of State did an awful lot at the EU level, both to ensure that uh, Britain's environment was uh, improved, but also the environment of our continent is improved. And that's important not just in climate change, but in matters from air pollution to our beaches and our water and so on. Mm. And people forget that before we joined the European Union, Britain was seen as the dirty uh, man of Europe. We were also seen as the sick man of Europe because our economy was in a mess. Mm. And in the period we've been in the EU, our economy has strengthened and our environment has improved. That's just straightforward facts. And while I wouldn't say it's only down to the European Union, um, I think if we pulled out, we would see both our environment and our economy uh, worse as a result. And obviously one element of this, when we talk about those sort of risks and our environment being worse, one, I suppose it could be seen as a risk, uh, but a fallout at least of if this, if we did exit the EU, is that um, certain elements of environmental policy could be under more control from um, sort of domestically from the, the UK government. Um, obviously, recent green policy changes taken into account, it's been a pretty turbulent period for our readers, for sustainability professionals, energy managers and the like. Um, I suppose that past year could be summed up by that one word of uncertainty. Um, and given that you used to be the person responsible for, for many of those areas, um, perhaps you could just sum up the, the past 13 months of energy and environment policy from the Conservatives. Disaster. Um, the Conservatives have made some completely irrational decisions. For example, applying a green tax to renewables is economic madness and illogical. Getting rid of the zero carbon home standards for future buildings is nutty. Um, ending the carbon capture and storage uh, pilots is uh, verging on the negligent and criminal. Um, and they're just three of their worst decisions, but there have been many others too. And I actually don't blame Amber Rudd. I think she's doing the bidding of George Osborne because when I was Secretary of State, I had arguments about those types of policies with people like George Osborne and Eric Pickles, who were trying to stop Liberal Democrats in government from making our country greener. Fortunately, we succeeded. We got those policies through. But we now see how, because we're not there, 
um, Mr Osborne is trying to undo the good on the green side that the Liberal Democrats achieved. The major question that I then think when you say all that is is, is why? Um, I mean, they've said all of this is in the interest of consumer bills and energy security, um, but clearly these changes are having detrimental effects in other areas, such as you know investor confidence and industry stability. What do you see that's happening then within De- DEFRA and the government and the, and the relationship between all three that's really leading to this chop-and-change approach to energy, climate and environmental issues? I'm afraid Mr Osborne, in my experience, doesn't understand or care enough about the agenda. He talks about price, not realising that some of his policies are put up energy bills and some of the green policies are putting down energy bills. I mean, investing in energy efficiency is a way to save energy and save money, but he's cut back on that. So even in his own terms, he's making our economy and our people uh, poorer and having less energy security because of the measures they're taking. And it is extraordinary how ignorant some people are within different parts of government and different parts of the Conservative Party about the basic facts. And that should alarm people, that people in power don't even know the basic facts, that aren't disputable, aren't contestable, aren't controversial. And they're making policy on the basis of ignorance, which should worry people. In my experience, and certainly my observations since the election, is they are making policy on the foot, without any evidence, without any analysis, and indeed on the basis of ignorance and um, prejudice. That should alarm people that policies as important as our energy and our climate are being decided on a non-evidence and ignorant basis. So, I mean, if you were were in Amber Rudd's position then, which you have been previously um, leading DEC, is, is this a is it a bit of a hope, hopeless position? I mean, what would be your first move? What could you do to reverse that feeling of uncertainty and actually get, gain more control over these environments and energy policy issues? Well, DEC has to stand up to the Treasury and has to demand the number ten tax DEC against this uh, Treasury nonsense. Um, and uh, it's important that um, we go back to evidence-based policies. We need a much longer-term approach, and we need to give investors the certainty and stability they need. Uh, Without that, um, we will see lower investment, we will see higher prices, and we will see energy security problems. Looking at this all more broadly through the prism of of climate change, green business issues, um, Paris Sustainable Development Goals all kind of agreed within the past 18 months or so. Where would you like the state of the UK and EU green policy to be in in sort of three to five years' time? Are you optimistic about um, whether or not we can kind of get out of the current situation we're in and and really sort of solidify a lot of our approaches? In recent years, we have made some really big strides forward. On policy, we've seen in the UK the Climate Change Act, which is vital that we keep. We've seen in Europe the 2030 package, which I was very much involved in, uh, which helped lead to the fantastic agreement at Paris on climate change. So we've seen some real advances. And we've also seen, very importantly, some advances on the technology side. The decline in the cost of uh, solar, of wind, the uh, fantastic um, advances we're making in energy storage means that the renewable clean world and affordable clean world that we've talked about is very much now available. So we've seen these advances, and we have to make sure that political developments in Britain, whether we Brexit or not, political developments in Europe, do not get in the way of these fantastic improvements. And it's an issue of our economic competitiveness, because if you look at what's happening in China, the United States, India, Brazil, these countries have really now woken up to the fact that the low-carbon economy the economy of the future. And it's sad because Europe and Britain still has a leadership in that area. But because of some pretty unpleasant right-wing politics, it looks like we're going to give up that leadership. And that would be a huge strategic mistake, as well as being bad for the climate. Yeah. yeah. Um, OK, 
Okay, so uh, I'm aware that you're, you're a busy man. You've got another meeting to get to shortly. Um, but I just thought it might be worth ending on um, uh, just a quick note on, on what you're up to at the moment. I know that you obviously chair as, a, as chair of Mongoose Energy. You recently launched that um, the retail green gas and electricity supplier. Um, how things going there? Is that what's taking up most of your time at the moment? I'm doing quite a number of things. Um, I form my own uh, energy consultancy called Energy Destinations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing a lot of work, which I from the cabinet office for um, and a key part of that is mongoose energy um, as a secretary of state I was very keen on community energy um, and uh, the reason I teamed up with mongoose is I think they are the most exciting prospect in community energy in the United Kingdom and I believe if we have uh, more of our energy owned by local people that spreads wealth uh, it increases competition against the big corporates and ensures that we invest more in green, sustainable energy. So I've always liked the community energy model, and Mongoose are a leader. And that's the reason why I've teamed up with them, and I'm proud to be their chairman. Great, right. it's great to see a, a, a minister in this area actually sort of staying within it once they finish their tenure in government. Um, so yeah, uh, best of luck with that. It's great to see what you're doing there. Um, and thank you very much for your time. Okay, cheers Luke. Thank you. Thank you. So, are you in or are you out? Now, you'll notice that the two interviews in this show both present the argument for in, and we, of course, don't want to be completely excluding the other side of the debate. But the reason for that really is because the overwhelming majority of environmental politicians and figureheads and people from within the industry are strongly in favour of remaining in the EU. We've just heard some of the reasons for that from Natalie Bennett and Ed Davey. But let's now open this discussion up to to both of you, George and Matt. Um, I know you've been sitting there patiently waiting to get involved in this discussion. Matt, let's start with you. So I thought perhaps the best way of starting this discussion would be to start for a moment um, just imagining, heaven forbid, that you weren't working for Edie, that you weren't writing about sustainability and environmental issues on a daily basis. Just like my dreams. (laughs) Would you be considering issues like climate change, air quality, the state of Britain's beaches, when casting your vote, had you not have been writing about these issues for the past year? No. Um, no, I think that's a fairly unanimous no as well. <laughs> I think the general um, national media portrayal has, has been this kind of gang war between, you know, fabrication of economic figures um, and this kind of scaremongering approach that both parties seem to be taking on. Mm. It's, I I would stress that no matter the result on Thursday or Friday morning when we get it, I I don't think the UK will come out of this without feeling a bit embarrassed about mm. the whole approach to it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't think um, sustainability, climate, environment has got anywhere near as as enough as n- enough of a kind of window to really stake its claim and and the reason why we should stay in compared to compared to other things. I think. You know, my friends um, who, you know, one of them works in network rail, his union's telling him to, to vote out simply for an economic reason. Um, mm. My other friend was, his his interest in, in the referendum goes as far as how far England would get in Euro 2016. <laughs> there, there are generally people who would base their votes on how far mm. how far we got. And um, there's a complete lack of, there's a complete lack of information. Even, even the, the concepts that get main airtime, mm. It's still very much a guesswork approach, and I think that's why. Well, I think that's why it's surprising that environment hasn't gotten the uh, the airtime it, it has, because there have been a lot of reports about, you know, the potential financing. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how much money we send to Brussels, mm. very little about how much we get back and what what we get in return for that. Mm. So, if I wasn't in this job, I would not be basing my vote on the environment. Would you, George? Um, I concur with Matt. Really? It's uh, something that hasn't crossed my mind before mm. Mm. I started this job. Mm. But um, as again, I think that's mainly to do with media coverage or a lack of media coverage mm. uh, in, in terms of environmentalism. It's interesting. Yeah, we did. We did in the discussions there with with Natalie and Ed. Obviously, we discussed that. Um, it's probably no surprise to many of the listeners that these serious issues of climate and energy have not been talked about enough in the various debates. They weren't in the debates going into the the elections uh, last year. But I do think that um, the times that these issues have been brought into an even more global context, with things like the Paris Agreement and the SDGs, the British public has been able to get a feel for that better together ethos. 
in Paris, we saw the 175 countries, including the EU, um, united for that one common purpose, which is so rare. And from that alone, we can see that at least from a from a climate change and global warming mitigation perspective, now is not the time to be pulling up the drawbridge um, and trying to take on these these issues alone. So, Matt, I mean, I suppose that first question was a little unrealistic because obviously <laughs> the reality is you do write about these these issues. I've got you pinned down here on the editorial desk. Um, and you will, of course, be influenced by the opinion we hear from green businesses and the renewable energy industry on the referendum. So are things a bit clearer for you now? Is that an issue where actually there is a bit of certainty over what you think? Yeah, I mean, um, I think my, my exposure to this kind of environmental side has, has made this decision for me much easier, mm. I, I think. Um, you know, the Ed Davey interview, he alluded to kind of um, Chris Rose's The Dirty Man of England, mm. uh, The Dirty Man of Europe uh, book, sorry, and how we kind of revert back to that. And the more you look into it, the more I think we probably still are mm. the dirty man, <laughs> just in terms of our general size. I mean, I know I know we're, our emissions are falling, yeah. but, you know, DEFRA's faith in court battles. Mm. And mm. I, I think now's not the time to kind of abandon... A European Union that's trying to to hit these these global goals, mm. because I don't trust the government to kind of tar- uh, get rid of this kind of dirty man mm. kind of stigma we've surrounded. We'd be left to kind of wallow in our own filth. That's yeah, that's very much the feeling I came out of the two interviews on Monday with. Was it was kind of twofold. They were both. We spent five or ten minutes discussing the environmental implications of Brexit of which there are some and there are some clear examples where um, the being within the EU has benefited certain areas, as they both discussed. But both Natalie and Ed seem to spend more time coming at the whole discussion from an angle of what would happen if more control was put into the hands of the current regime, given the, the recent changes. I mean, Ed Davey, we just heard some of the comments he made there about the policy changes. Well, I don't I don't think they have the, the best kind of track record going into this, do they? Mm. They kind of Cameron went into his regime prompting this and promoting this, this greenest government ever and that's kind of fallen as as initiatives have, have done as well. And I think a couple of months ago Philip Selwood from the Energy Same Trust kind of hit the nail on the head. We we're operating this kind of Jenga like policy yeah. where we are pulling bricks out of the wall mm. and I think without external guidance and I think every country needs external guidance mm. and that's what COP21 and the SDGs that are doing mm. but I think without this external guidance this, this wall in which bricks out will be kind of reverted to rubble. Mm. Yeah two two surveys come to mind when you said all of that one was the the survey from IEMA I think it was of sustainability mm. professionals um, about the lack of what we've just been talking about the lack of kind of um, involvement of sustainability climate change issues in the debate and the second one was um, the survey of, again, of sustainability environmental professionals about the, the impact of those changes and the, what they want to see over the coming years from a domestic energy efficiency policy perspective. Um, and that is more clarity, more certainty. I mean, if there was one word that did sum it up for me, it would be uncertainty. I can't see where any more certainty is going to come from pulling out of the mm. EU. Um, but George, let's, let's bring you back in here. I mean, you've reported a couple of times on the other side of the, the debate. So perhaps just give us an, an overview of, um, of, of the kind of conclusion you've come to and how you've got there. So for me, it's been quite interesting. For the last couple of months or so, I've been um, attending quite a few um, big debates involving some prominent figures on both sides who are discussing the environmental benefits and I suppose the opposite mm. uh, in the EU debate. So, going into this, I I wasn't entirely sure what the environmental view was for those who support Brexit. I mean, you look at those who are, and it's uh, it seems to be the likes of Trump, the uh, climate <laughs> yeah. change deniers, mm. who uh, who I think would go at any attempts to sort of derail the Paris Agreement. Uh, if, if he was, God forbid, elected. Mm. So, yeah, going to the, these debates is quite interesting. You do hear some valid arguments. Mm. Um, one interview stands out uh, in particular, and that was with uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance Chairman. Michael Liebrick. Michael Liebrick, yeah. that's right. Um, and, yeah, he, so he put together a, a compelling uh, debate about why Britain would be better outside the EU. Mm. So... Um, 
we talked about this Jenga approach to policies, mm-hmm. but he said this was rather than this being the Britain uh, government's fault, it was more of a, a European-wide failure. Okay. Um, so it talks about clean energy investment, how that's been reduced in year, recent years. He talks mm-hmm. about um, how tariffs and subsidies have hugely inflated prices for renewables, and said that investment slumped in 2011 yeah. by more than half. Which it did, yeah, I guess those figures you can't deny. And actually that, um, the blog is one of the things I brought up with me, the blog that he'd written for Bloomberg New Energy Finance um, quite a few months ago now, going into the, the whole debate. Got some excerpts from his blog here. He says, um, the inevitable period, inevitable period of, of renegoti- renegotiation of relations with the EU is, is unlikely to see any significant changes in overall UK energy policy. The UK is reasonably well-placed to achieve its target of 15% renewable energy by 2020 and would be unlikely to pull out of the European carbon market since the current Conservative administration supports decarbonisation along the lines agreed in Paris. He says UK-Europe interconnectors would be likely to happen just as quickly or as slowly. Um, And he says the UK is still able to influence EU energy policy in the direction of interconnection, transparency, access and integration whether the EU is ready to hear this message, he says, and whether it's capable of acting on it is another thing entirely. I mean, the argument for those that are not in favour of remaining in the EU seems to be that of all of these potential impacts on, on green policy and on the UK environment as a whole would be much less than feared. Um, but I would note that, I mean, Libric doesn't seem to go into too much detail on any actual environmental benefits of leaving the EU, He's rather just saying that the impact um, that is being reported on, whether or not it's clean energy investment on environment more generally, on you know beaches, water, air quality, etc., is is less than what the Incamp is is claiming it is. I'm not sure how strong an argument though that is for sustainability professionals and for the green energy industry as a whole when we're in that current state of uncertainty. And reading that quote actually um, also just reminded me reminded me that actually. We on ED have already been exposed to at least one instance where being outside of Europe um, would have a clear impact on UK-EU relations on energy and the environment. Um, We have to be careful with our words here, but we were reporting on a story about a collection of EU countries that were signing a particular energy-related deal, um, and we received one press release that said the UK was in on that deal, and then another just a few hours later on that same day that excluded the UK. Suddenly the number of countries involved had dropped. We asked why and were told by the PR who'd sent us the amended release um, that that was because Britain was waiting for the outcome of, of Brexit. So I know I haven't gone into too much detail there, but there are some glimpses of the potential effects that Brexit could be having on the low carbon transition. Anyway, uh, it's time to, to wrap up. And perhaps, perhaps the best way to do so would be to quickly go around the table and each say how we'll be voting, if we want to say, and, and give us a one-line reason as to why. I'll start. I will be voting in. I'm sure that's no surprise to many. Um, but the reason, yeah, I suppose, in one line would be that we know the seriousness of the global climate challenge. Um, and I believe that breaking away from one another at a time when we need to be working closer than ever before on these international issues um, would not be beneficial. Matt? I am voting in. Um, Yay! (laughs) I, again, would resonate with this whole uncertainty issue. I am uncertain and I have a lack of faith in the government's ability to deliver targets away from the EU. I think it would be a bit like an unruly dog Mm. finally getting off the leash. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, sorry, I always want to come back in on that, but because I completely agree, I think that had had this if this debate was if the referendum was taking place under different circumstances at different times, maybe I would be viewing it from another perspective. But it's near on impossible for me as an editor of a news title that is just constantly being receiving these releases and comments from all sides of the industry you're writing about that is slating the government and the changes it's making. It's very hard to view this in any other way than if we do leave, we hand certain areas of power to this government that is not making our readers uh, happy. So it's hard for me to see it in any other light at the moment. Um, Anyway, sorry, that was me stealing my line. George? 
Um, yep, that's a clean sweep of ins, so three ins. Yeah. Um, my main reason would be that I think the free movement, free movement of goods, services and people, collaboration, and this extends to the environmental sector, is uh, essential for international progress as we move through the 21st century. Nicely put. So yeah, clean sweep. Um, no surprise for many of our listeners, I'm sure. Um, but now it's time for, for your vote. Are you in or are you out? I hope this special episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast has been informative and has helped you to make your decision, perhaps feel a bit more comfortable with your decision, perhaps be a little bit inspired if you're still um, still undecided. Join us again next week. We're not sure exactly what will be on, on the show, but I, I'm sure we'll be reflecting on the outcome of the, the referendum. Just one last note, which is to say that this podcast is now available on iTunes. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered, and otherwise um, you are still able to download them all directly from the ed.net website as well and listen to them all for free. Until next time, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from George. Goodbye. And goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.